Welcome back to the corner of story and game, your way station at the crossroads of fiction craft and game design. I am your host, Gerald Ford, and this week I sit down with writer Jim Zub. Jim is best known for his work in creating comics, ranging from the A-list Marvel titles such as Thunderbolts to massive properties like Conan and even his own wildly popular Wayward and Skullkickers. He has worked on various Dungeons and Dragons projects, including the D&D Young Adventurer's Guide. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm sure most people know who Jim Zub is, but just to give us a quick intro for the two people who don't. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't want to ever take that for granted. So um, I'm a, a comic book writer. I'm a writer. I'm known for all kinds of storytelling stuff, particularly in comics, but also kind of in the tabletop role playing game space now. I've been doing this for quite a while. I've been doing conventions and comics and all these other things for 20 years now. Uh, but it's only really the last kind of decade that that I got on a lot of people's radar. So it's it's a pretty classic, you know, kind of 10 year overnight success sort of thing. That's uh, <laughs> that's how this stuff tends to go. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Would you say there was a, a moment along the way where things could have went one way, but they went this way? There was there that pivotal moment in your career? Yeah, there's been a few of them, honestly. I think we all, you know, kind of see them. Every creative career is something where in the rearview mirror it makes sense because there's a there's a progression of of logic. But as, you know, in the moment when it's happening, you're like, how did I get here? Or or it can be kind of wild to sort of realize, oh man, because I did this, I met this person, and because they recommended me or they put me in touch with this other person, all of a sudden these higher profile things kind of came about. Right. And, you know, it, it's one of those classic things that I always tell people, they say, you know, oh, sure. It's like the right place at the right time. And you're like, yeah, that's why you have to make places and times. And it doesn't mean that, you know, when that right one's going to happen. But if you're not putting yourself out there, if you're not creating things, if you're not doing stuff and meeting people, there will be no right one. There will be no, no, nothing will come about. Right. And that doesn't mean you're going to get to do exactly what you want to do, let alone on the timeline you think you deserve it. But um, doing stuff is the, is the constant, you know, to making things and finishing things and, and putting out into the world. That's what I've always kind of felt. Um, and that it's easier to say that, I think, you know, once you've got uh, things you've done out there in the world, you know, one of the other big problems with talking to, people in any kind of industry, particularly people who have been successful, is you're immediately getting survivor bias. It's like everyone tells you, you know, if you just buy enough of these lottery tickets, you're going to get you're going to get the big prize. And it's like, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but what is important is that you're making stuff and that you are satisfied and and excited about the thing you're doing right now, right. that you're putting things together rather than constantly pining for a career that has not yet happened. Uh, or, you know, shaking your fist that, that the universe has not recognized your genius or whatever, you know? Yeah. 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 Have you ever read that Ira Glass quote about the curse of a writer or curse of being a creator is you're built with taste, but not ability. Yes. yes. And it takes a long time to find that. It's the exact quote. Something like it takes a while for you to recognize what taste is or your own taste or something like that. And, and the difficult part is at the very start, you are really kind of a, um, 
you're always going to be a Frankenstein monster of your influences, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that the stitching's really obvious at the start of your career. You can, everyone can really see the parts right. and you're hanging the parts, trying to be a poor man's whatever, you know, mm -hmm. your favorite authors, your favorite artists, your favorite creators. And, and over time, you're able to kind of refine and find a bit more of your own voice and find a bit more of your own pace and, and, file some of those serial numbers off, hopefully a little bit better yeah. uh, so that people aren't just looking at you and saying, oh man, you're, you're just a bad, you know, uh, uh, amalgamation. You're just a, a, a monster been thrown into the soup or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, apart from putting out work, doing the work, if you were to look right. back, what would be the one piece of advice that, you know, slightly older Jim would give to young Jim? Oh, um, that's a good uh, one piece of advice I would say is, you know, you, I guess it's related to that very same thing. It, it's don't be afraid to to make things. Don't be afraid to um, to carry through and to finish stuff. I think a lot of creative people that I knew when I was in college, they would have big plans and they would have big ideas, but they didn't want to put anything out until it was absolutely perfect right. you know what i mean in oh, yeah. that in that way that it can only be perfect in your head <laughs> and it can only be flawless in your dreams do you know what i mean oh, and yeah. so they would not do the thing they would make a hundred concept sketches and they would design logos and they would do treatments and 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 drafts of ideas and scripts and you know story bits and brainstorming and concept art and and you're like you know what you really need is page one you know, like you got to do the thing or you got to make it and you got to finish it and you got to put it out there because in your mind, it's always going to be perfect. And it's, it's unassailable. No one can critique it and no one can tell you it sucks and no one can tell you, Meh. Right. I think the worst thing is if someone tells you it sucks, at least it generated an emotional response. <laughs> There's nothing worse than meh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, oh yeah. yeah, I guess I read that. Oh, maybe I saw it. You're like, oh God, I didn't even <laughs> have an effect on you. That's the worst criticism of all, you know, at least if you hate something, I got you angry. Um, <laughs> you know, like, so, um, yeah, do the thing, finish the thing, be, have the courage of your conviction, put it out there. Even if you know, it's not flawless, even if you can already see the flaws by the time it's completed, because that way you've done it. And then you can move on to the next one. And that's the only way you're going to get better. There's too many people who want to be, they want to be like Athena. So Athena in the classic legends is pulled from the forehead of Zeus and she's already an adult and a perfect warrior. Right. right. And it's like, it, that's how it works in the myths, but it's not how it actually works in practice. You have to make things, you have to screw things up you have to build relationships with other people and you have to understand get your head around it you know you can watch a hundred tutorials i've written dozens and dozens and dozens of articles about things and they they have value in the sense that they can give you a bit of a map and help you to avoid some obvious pitfalls mm -hmm. But there's some stuff you can't be taught, like you have to do it, you have to go through it. Or even if you read it, you haven't internalized the advice because you haven't, you haven't done it yet. And that's the simple truth of it. Um, go make the thing. And then some of the advice that seemed slight will suddenly seem a lot more meaningful. And some of the things that you may have ignored, all of a sudden, you'll be like, oh, oh, right. The budget, that was the thing I should have kept track of. The schedule, <laughs> right. communication, you know, these other things, these soft skills that that you can easily sort of get so hyper-focused on, you know, the deliverable that you don't necessarily see the other parts. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Often when we talk about the craft of writing, the craft of creating, 
whatever your creative field is, we forget mm-hmm. about those soft skills. And one, right. one thing you're really well known for, and I can speak from personal experience, is you're the con guy. Like, not, not the con guy. But <laughs> the con guy. Wait a minute. No, you mean um, convention guy. Yes. Okay, you're the it, friendliest it. face uh, I do at a, a convention. lot of conventions. I'm uh, pretty extroverted in that sense. I mean, I go through periods of introversion, but, but on the most part, if that classic kind of introvert extrovert thing is some people gain energy from interacting with other people and some people are sapped of energy i generally gain energy i want to see my friends i want to socialize i want to have that feeling i want to feel connected to the industry that i'm in and and be reminded why we do this stuff you know and so the more i tend to do the body gets tired and gets wiped out but the mind is active and crackling (laughs) with with excitement off of this stuff uh you were going somewhere with that though i cut you off no that's what you feel free that that's fantastic (laughs) um but where i was going is i've heard you even say this on in uh at forums before is Mm -hmm. a big part of becoming a, a working professional in a creative field is networking getting out to these events. So is that something you also teach and advise to young creatives trying to get into a field is? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, um, it's such a crucial part of this thing, whether like it, you wish it didn't have to be, you know what I mean? You wish that the networking wasn't such a big part of it, but it, it just is people want to work with other people that they trust and they know, and that someone else can, can vouch for. And that's true of any creative field. That's not a comic thing. Yeah, that's no. not a gaming thing. It's film and it's, it's art and it's music and it's acting and it's all those things, right? Like we, the familiar is always going to be easier, you know, in that sort of sense. And so putting a name to a face and, and putting yourself out there. And sometimes like you'll go to a convention year after year and you'll just see the same person. And all of a sudden there's a weird familiarity that builds up until there's a breakthrough and one of you talks or one of you finally gets a formal introduction, but there's a weird familiarity there. The same thing happens with social media. You mm-hmm. know, you'll be reading about, you have these weird moments where you've been watching videos of someone or you've been seeing them online. And then all of a sudden you have an in-person conversation and you remember, you don't know each other, you know, Oh, I don't actually, they don't know who the hell I am or vice versa, but you feel like you did that parasocial kind of buildup. And right. so it's important to break through those barriers and make actual connections with people and have those kinds of contacts. Um, because that's just being at the front of the mind of someone when they're all the time, all the time I'm talking to people and they're looking for artists, they're looking for writers, they're looking for things. And sometimes I'm the right fit and sometimes I'm not. And if I, you know, someone asked me, oh, who's a good fit for that? And I go, oh, you know, you got to contact is so-and-so. And that can be the moment, right? And right. vice versa. People have recommended me or Jim knows a guy or you got to, you know, Jim's got a, an army of artists that he's met over the years and he's probably got someone that can fill in the gap or or be part of that kind of thing or, or, just whatever, you know, that's why you need to do it is you need to be, you need to be out there, which isn't to say that every moment of every day, you should be hard selling. Like I see people who go overboard, you go to a convention and you see those people that they're like practically pulling people towards their table or trying to, yeah. and it has the exact reverse effect where you're like, you're trying a little too hard. You're trying the, you, you've watched too many of those, whatever influencer videos. And they tell you stand up straight and speak like this and have a, you know, witty repartee. And you're like, no, you're, you're too scripted. You're kind of creepy in your hyper social kind of attitude. Yeah, like scary. if anything, one of the things that I think, you know, cuts through a lot of uh, garbage is, um, 
you know, they people talk all the time about, about being genuine, about being heartfelt, about being that it's okay to be, you know, less than perfect yeah. in in the modern era. And, you know, what people respond to is a genuine excitement and genuine emotion and genuine enthusiasm for what you're doing and putting out into the world. And we can tell the difference. You know what I mean? So, you know, if you're not built for networking, you don't have to like throw yourself into the deep end and be something you're not. But equally, you know, you do need to sort of step outside a little bit. You do need to you know, if you can't handle massive convention parties, that's totally fine. Find a group of people that you are comfortable socializing with, open up to them and slowly but surely, you know, you will still see benefits from it regardless of, of anything else. You know? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into craft a little bit here. Sure. You're extremely prolific. <laughs> I mean, you, you bang out a lot of stuff. <laughs> I yeah, I you know what's weird? It's like sometimes I feel like I am, and other times I know this is gonna sound crazy, but I don't. <laughs> like I go through periods of of extreme um productivity. Um, and one of the ways that I inadvertently do that, I guess I don't like I'm um trying to think how to put this in the right terms, right? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm prolific. I put out a lot of work. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of promotion. I'm constantly sort of throwing myself into the stuff. And I know that. And so the first question everyone always asks me is how do you maintain that? Or how do you organize yep. yourself? Right. Yep. That's, that's, that was, the that's where we're going. Cause I know you also, yeah. you, are you still teaching at Seneca as well? Yes. Yeah. I'm full-time uh, teacher <laughs> at post-secondary uh, at this college called Seneca College. I used to run the animation program there. I was the animation coordinator. I did that for 14 years. It was an incredible uh, opportunity and ability to guide hundreds uh, and hundreds of students um, who are off working in the industry, some of them in comics and some of them in movies and animation and TV and special effects and all sorts of stuff. Um, and it kept me humble and it kept me, it constantly reminded me what kind of, uh, you know, the, the enthusiasm and the energy that I had when I was a student yeah. and never to take any of that for granted, honestly. And so part of it is, is that sort of a drive, like when I'm looking at a whole series of projects, first off, I'm a planner. Like some people are in writing terminology, they call it planning and other people call it pantsing where they're mm -hmm. going by the seat of their pants. Yeah. And that's a great inspired way to be if you can be a pantser and just sort of hit page one and not know where you're going. But both the industry as a, as a function of commerce and also editors and and art directors and everyone that you want to work with those people are schedulers those people are planners so you better be one hell of a pantser that they know they're going to get something at the end that they can use because right. otherwise you're just they're constantly freaking out because they don't know what they're going to get from you and thankfully i think because i come from an animation background um I don't know how much you know about animation production, but like animation is too expensive for them to, you can't make a bunch of footage you're not going to use. Do you know what I mean? It's right, not like yeah. live action where you shoot 10 takes and you find the one that works, right? right? Like you don't animate the thing 20 different ways and then go, which one do we think has the most, <laughs> That you know, sounds expensive. The, is, is the best interpretation. Like if, if you're doing a ton of animation and it's hitting the cutting room floor, you've done something horrifically wrong because mm -hmm. that scene should never have gotten to that point. 
um, animated films are pre-edited. They're, they're done in storyboards first, and they put together something, depending on called a story reel or a like a reel, where you can literally watch a temp track version of the movie cutting shot to shot, right. sometimes temp to voices, sometimes even the final vocal tracks. And then it's like a patchwork quilt where they're finishing certain sections, rough animation or animatic or, or uh, you know, finished bits of production and oh, pre effects and then post-production and then final music cut. And it's all being assembled huh. in chunks. And sometimes they're prioritizing, oh, this is the big, the money shot that's going to take all of our special effects team. We better get started on that early. I remember talking to uh, part of the animation team for Frozen and they were saying the sequence where, um, Ilsa's dress is being formed and she's doing the big song number and she's yeah. coming into her own power. They knew that was the height of the big song number and one of the big visual moments is going to show up in the trailer everywhere and children everywhere and adults are going to be, you know, delighted. And so they spent just an inordinate amount of time on those shots because they knew that's your money shot. That's where we're going to spend our budget, right. our creative budget and our, our financial budget. And so when you learn how to make animated films, you just learn this compartmentalization of, of projects. You learn how to break it down. You learn how to uh, delegate. You learn how to organize and kind of pre-edit. And, and so I think one of the things I do differently than some writers, um, I do a lot of development and planning up front. And then I usually only write to at most two drafts of a script. Usually the first draft is like 70% there, 80% there. And then I'm making a few edits based on editorial feedback. But the, the, the outline I'm sending is really tight. Um, in a comic, I will do a breakdown literally page by page. I go, you know, this scene is going to be four pages and then we're going to turn the page and this scene's going to start. I know where the big action moments are going to hit and I'm sort of pre-editing it in my head. And usually I'm running through the scenes in my head over and over and over again, kind of like, oh, okay, that's the moment. So we know that's coming. So I've got to have all my ingredients to make sure that moment's going to hit. And so, you know, when I'm writing a script, it's like I said, 80% there. Sometimes, you know, I'll get it, I'll do a draft and I won't get any edits whatsoever. So I guess it was 100%. I'll just hit it. And the <laughs> editor goes, great, it's going off to the artist or whatever. And then other times it's just minor tweaks or it's like, oh, okay, just don't forget this little piece or, you know, it's, 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 adjusting text so the visuals are all going to go through fine we just need to fix a couple of grammatical errors and make sure that we're really hitting home this one particular emotional moment or whatever and so um i'm writing less drafts i'm doing more for whatever you want to call pre-production in my brain and so when i'm hitting that stuff it's pretty locked in right. like i and i can tell the difference when i'm writing with a tight outline versus when i'm pantsing like where i know something i've done it where I'll, I'll in my head i go oh yeah gotta make sure i gotta build out that middle but because i've done enough books the editor lets me run and i'm like i really should have planned that out more tightly because i'm spending way more time on this script than i normally would because i didn't plan it the way i normally do you gotcha. know yeah. um and that's a big difference so being hyper organized i guess helps a lot um this is going to sound really weird and it's not meant to be as dire as it sounds, but being held to account, mm. like on your own personal creative projects, it can be really, really, really hard to be motivated because you're the only one who 
is is holding you to task and you're the only one knows that has a deadline and you're the only one that that at that point believes in it or whatever the minute i incorporate other people into that process a publisher uh, 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 an artist in particular on a comic project i've made them a creative promise and i've been on the other side of those creative promises where people have not given me what they said they were going to when they said they were going to mm -hmm. and i know how much it screws with your head and it screws with the schedule and it screws with your pocketbook and so part of it is is the fear of letting other people down and putting myself into a situation where i'm forced to either deliver or let people down does that sort of make sense oh yeah for sure no deadlines can do that for you yeah and so it's if i don't get given external deadlines i have to generate internal deadlines and Smart. by doing so they have to be real they can't be messing around so it's uh, you know that's one of the reasons why the collaboration in comics is so great in some ways because i'm on the hook there's an artist waiting and they got to do pages and their job is going to take a lot longer than mine does, generally speaking. And so they need the time to do the thing I promised them. And money on the table is, you know, roof over their head and everything else. Like oh, yeah. we got to do the thing. Right. Yeah. So I told you, you're getting a script, you're getting a script, hell or high water. <laughs> and there's a, there's a adrenaline rush that comes from making that promise there's an adrenaline rush from promising an editor i was going to do the thing and you know i'm sure in some idealized state you could say well if you had twice as much time it would be of higher quality and you're like yes and yet you know and yet part of the job is delivering and part of getting better is doing the job and doing it over and over and over again you know there's a, a law in when you take productivity management. Yeah. I can't remember the name of it, but is is the law is the amount of time that you assign to a task, the task will grow to fill the time. Oh, yeah, totally. And my students do this all the time. So if I give them a one-week project, they'll work like hell on it, and they'll do a pretty good job. Yeah. If I give them two weeks to work on the same project, they'll faff around for the first week, and then they'll work like hell, and then they'll, they'll yep. do about the same quality, maybe 10% better. Yeah. with double the time do you know exactly. what i mean i give them a three-week project the first week is just garbage they literally it doesn't exist because they have other projects and other classes that are one week or two week projects so the three-week project might as well have not been assigned <laughs> because this is not a priority they do not care right and so a three-week project is a two-week project and a two-week project is kind of a week and a half project do you know what i mean and so oh, yeah. Three, pro three week projects should not be on the schedule essentially, or I need to break this into two smaller chunks of projects that build to a larger thing. Because if I don't have some milestone in the middle, that's very distinct, I'm getting garbage, you know? <laughs> you, you don't want that. And, and that's not even like, I'm not mad at those students. That's like human behavior. Yep. What is the current fire we're putting out? And so I'm constantly lining up fires that need to be put <laughs> out. And it's not fires like the editor thinks I'm incompetent and we're riding the razor's edge, but it's like internal fires of, I know there's only X amount of time in order for me to pull this off and look like I'm an organized person, I need this much time. Right. Well, I guess tonight's the night I'm writing this script. Like that's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. Or this is the time I'm writing the script on the plane, or this is the time I'm writing the script in the hotel room. Like when I'm traveling a lot, it's like, that's how it's gotta be, you know, get on the plane, hope to God that you don't have someone too talkative beside you, 
get, you know, if you need to get a glass of wine, sit there with a laptop and just start cranking, like make sure you've got all your reference material. You've got your pacing notes and just start, just punch it out and, and know that because I've been doing it so long, I will always be able to deliver, you know, B quality. And when I'm on a roll, it's going to be B plus or A quality. Okay, let's go. And yeah. whatever I don't catch, my editor will make sure that we're going to get as close to that top end as we can. And that's the secret to Jim's productivity. It sounds weird, right? It's like Jim's going for B quality. Wow, what a what a piece no, of crap. You know? I, no, I meant but, lining up the fires and yeah, internal no, fires, motivation. And, fires, you know, and, and the weird moments where you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how else to put it. And, and sometimes I'm overwhelmed. Like, you know, if I have a night where it doesn't go the way I hope, thankfully, I think the thing I've learned most, one of the most valuable tools I tell this to my students all the time is to, to know what your actual productivity is, not blue moon, best case scenario. Mm. Oh my God, look what I can pull off. Yeah. But like consistently, what can you rely on and build your schedule around that with a bit of buffer if you can. So it says, okay, on even a crappy day, I can script five pages after school. Like I can go work all day. I can grab dinner. I can go up to my office where I am right now, close the door and I can script five pages. I can do more, but I know five is real. Like four to five is not out of the realm of possibility, even yeah. on my most tired, most bent, most broken days, I can get four to five pages of script done. So if I have four days to do a script and it's 20 pages, it will get done. Right. Period. Done. Like if I get it done in two days, great. If I get it done in three, great. Oh, I've got a day to let it rest. I can come back to it, give it a quick edit pass myself, make it even stronger. But on day four, you're getting a damn script like that. I can promise because my productivity, I know it. The problem is, is that have I written a script in a day? Absolutely. I've written a 20 page script in, in a day. But that was like the stars were in alignment or everything was go, you know, or it was do or die or whatever. I would never, ever, ever promise a one day script to an editor like that is just you're doomed. You right. know what I mean? Like, yeah. why would you ever do that to yourself? And so what I need to do is make schedules that are real based on what I can actually produce. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But it means that when I tell an editor, you'll have it Monday, mm-hmm. I'm not messing with them. I don't really mean Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, next <laughs> week. Oh, did I say Monday? What I meant was right. midnight Tuesday, which is really your Wednesday morning. Like, <laughs> no, no. If I told you Monday, you're getting it Monday. You know? sound like a teacher who's heard this before from somebody. Right? <laughs> and, and so that's the thing. And if I need more time and it happens, I'm not perfect. I will tell the editor as soon as humanly possible. I will communicate with them because I have been an editor. I've been I'm a teacher. I know exactly what it feels like when you're promised something and you don't get it. Your version in your head is, oh, it's all falling apart. But if there's communication now, I feel okay. So yeah. if you say to me, I know I said Monday, but I really need Tuesday. Now 
I believe you because right. you've actually reached out and you've made that. Don't come to me Tuesday and go, oh, did I say Monday? Here's Here it is now. Like, I know it only seems like a day, but there's 24 hours where the editors starting to clench up and be like, oh, are they lying? Are they lying? I promised the artist that I would have it to them Tuesday. Now I can't get to them till Wednesday. Now they're freaking out. Now I'm freaking out. Right. No, no, no. Everybody knows what's going on. Here's where things are at. Same thing if I'm traveling. I'm like, look, I'm on whatever. I'm flying to Japan. It's an 11-hour flight. It's going to take me two days to recover from jet lag. For the next three days, my communication is going to suck. I'm going to get back to you as best I can. But now no one's expecting you know, perfection. Now everyone knows I'm basically any email you get to me is a, is a small gift. That's how it's going to be for the next three days or whatever. Cool. Now everyone's aware. There's no freakouts. There's no why the hell isn't someone responding. That's also when someone else will jump in and go, oh, Jim's on a plane or Jim's thing. You know, let's make this decision or this is how it's got to be. Or the editor makes a final call on some thing. And it's like, fine, that's the job. That's what needs to get done. You know? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. So it's empowering other people because you're informing them and communicating with them. And you're looking after those relationships that are important to a career. Yep. 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 Every time, as much as you can. And so a a lot of it is, you know, Tom Brevoort's one of my best editors. He's the head of the Avengers office at Marvel. And he puts it really succinctly. He says, our job is to communicate and to entertain. And the first people we need to communicate and entertain are our collaborators. We need to communicate well with them and we need to engage them and let them, they need to know why we've made the decisions we've made so that they put their creative power into it. Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's, you know, that's, that's smart. And so it's not just about my way or the highway. It's, it's like, you know, and Tom's really good about this as an editor as well, where he'll push against some of the things I'm coming up with because he wants to know what's running underneath them. He wants to know that they've got, you know, there's good creative juices there or good decisions. And so he'll push back on something or he'll say he's not convinced. And that doesn't mean we're not doing it. It's like, well, then convince me, mm-hmm. right? You seem passionate about this particular story turn. Cool. Give me the same, you know, enthusiasm, make sure that I know why we're doing it. And then he can champion it all the way through the, the you know, halls of power or whatever. That yeah. sounds like so much fun. <laughs> it can be, it can be stressful, of course. <laughs> It's like building a legal case, like you're getting in there. Oh, yeah. Okay, this is why it's the right move, you know. And then, of course, if you have if you have good if you want a bunch of those in a good way, you've made something good, and it creatively it goes over well, or or the readers really love it, or sales you know are are stellar. Well, it just it bolsters your ability to make big swings later. And if mm-hmm. you fail on a bunch of those, well, now you know you've got it's a harder uphill battle, obviously. <laughs> But you learn, you got to learn how to pitch and how to present. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. All right. Let's uh, dig a little more into comics as a storytelling form themselves. Cause that's sure. your, that's your, that's your world. That's what you do. Yeah. That's my jam. So what, what would you say you've learned from being a comic book writer that affects other areas of your creativity? What do you take from comics that you apply to everything else? Well, so first off, I mean, comics are visual storytelling, you know, in a very succinct and and interesting way, because not only are they visual, but unlike film, um, we completely control the pacing of what we're seeing. I can roll my eyes back and forth over panels. I can jump to previous pages. I can compare two panels instantly on a page 
and juxtapose them to each other, let alone text, let alone other elements, right? right. And so unlike film, I, where I, I wouldn't sit there and fast forward and still frame, I mean, you can, but it's not the norm in how you, you know, understand and, and, and partake of the medium. And yet in comics, it's sort of, you know, standard procedure. So you can do different things visually uh, that I find really potent and really powerful and really interesting. And part of my job as the writer is to, you know, my text is going to end up on the page in terms of dialogue or captioning narration, but really the artist's interpretation of what I'm telling them is, is the final visual push. And so if I've done my job, I've very clearly let them know what is important and why. And that doesn't mean telling them exactly how to lay out the page. Sometimes I'll do it, but very rarely. Usually it's giving them the clear thrust. This is why we're doing this. This is very important. Mm -hmm. You know, I do full script most of the time. So it's here's how many panels and here's how I'm visualizing it. But they're still interpreting that at the right. end of the day. They've got to put themselves into it or it's not going to work, you know, Um and that's different from a lot of other mediums. So I've learned a lot about pacing and dialogue and, and storytelling and, and empathy and characters from writing just ass loads of comics. <laughs> but, um, but each medium's got its own thing. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually say that what I've learned in comics, I, I you know, yes, in terms of storytelling in general, but like if you say, for example, what has comics taught me, uh, you know, and how does that relate to how I play tabletop role-playing games? Yeah. I would actually flip it on its head and I would say tabletop role-playing games taught me way more that I bring to comics than the other way around. Because every single time I'm writing a story, I'm getting into character. I'm right. setting up my campaign. I'm organizing my pieces. I'm putting encounters into, into process, right? I'm making sure we've got dramatic scenes and we've got action scenes. And then, whoa, this is getting a little boring. We should throw a trap in there or some other twist or, you know, things like that. I look at writing stories like being the dungeon master, but I'm also the character cast. Mm. And I'm pushing and pulling these different, and, and if a character hasn't been in the spotlight for a while, it's my job to coax them into play. You know right. what I mean? It's my job to make them feel valuable as part of the cast. I think it's one of the reasons why I love writing team books, because I love being able to push and pull different characters into the spotlight. I love being able to push them up against each other. Uh, whether that is in conflict or whether that is in unity or whether that is in romance or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I love getting into character. I don't want, there are some writers where their style seems to overwhelm the, the established uh, voices of characters, you know, and I don't need to point out specific examples because everyone knows what I'm talking about. And they'll say, oh, it's a, the, every character talks the same or they've all gotten quippy because so-and-so is writing them. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I want, Steve Rogers to sound like Steve Rogers that I remembered growing up. And I want Logan or, you know, Wanda Maximoff or, or Pietro or any of these characters, right. Mm -hmm. um, Clint Barton, you name it. They, yeah, yeah. They're all, they have a distinct way of looking at the world. And if I'm changing that, it's because it's an evolution of the character, not because I just arbitrarily decided so-and-so is going to be more like me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's yeah. not right. 
I, I believe really deeply in the shared universe concept and the continuity. I believe very strongly in that if you give readers a feeling that they're part of a big ongoing story, that they will come back and want to know what the next step is, you know, and that my job in something like the Marvel universe is I'm carrying the baton for a while and then I'm handing it off to someone else. And sometimes I get the baton and sometimes I get to run really, really far with it. And I take it to places that you may not have expected. And that's part of my job, but at some point it's not mine anymore. And the same thing holds true with any other work for hire commercial property that I work on. Um, Hopefully my run is well regarded and people watch the flashbacks and whatever other analogy I want to use for this thing. But, but, um, but it's not mine. The ones that are mine are Skull Kickers and Wayward and Glitter Bomb and Stone Star and other things that I have in development, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's the stuff I have to control every single aspect of it. And they're that much more a reflection of me. But, you know, um, yeah, that gaming aspect is about it's for me, it's about getting into character. Mm-hmm. And it's about seeing the broader patterns of what has come before and then trying to find new ways to challenge and level up, you know, each yeah. one as we go forward. Yeah, for sure. Add to it. I like that. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk game a little bit before we do though. You just sure. mentioned Wayward, and yeah. I have to talk about Wayward because Wayward is how I found Jim's Sub. Wayward oh, is thanks. Cool. Wayward is uh, that one really hit home for me. I mean, the the writing was fantastic. The art was amazing. It was a great story overall, but it also was extremely respectful of the Irish culture that is home to me and the Japanese culture, which is so interesting. And you did them, you did them really well. Like you paid proper attention to the mythology and, and to a, how did you do that? I I think I know, but because there were notes in the back of all the books, but explain that to us and B, how important is it to pay attention like that? I think, you know, I, this is true of fictional worlds and real history and myth, right? Research is everything that, you know, uh, the more research are the real world and real history and real things are so much deeper and more interesting and vibrant than, than just about any fantasy world we could put together. And I know that sounds weird for a guy who writes so much sword and sorcery, (laughs) Um, but it's true. And so, you know, my original idea for wayward, and it wasn't called that at the time, I don't remember the title that I originally had for it. And Stephen Cummings, my co-creator was not attached. It was just this vague idea of, myth in the modern world, you know, that was sort of at the heart of the whole thing was, well, if you take these original ideas in their time and you brought them forward, and it's not like this is a new concept, tons of people have done it and usually too much cliche. And I'm sure mine would have been cliche, unicorns and dragons running around city streets and bullshit. Um, and, And I knew it wasn't full. I knew there wasn't, it wasn't, interesting enough, but it was like something just poking at the edges of my ideas. Like, ah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. And then Steven and I had started talking about collaborating. Uh, We had talked years earlier before skull kickers even. And then when skull kickers happened and and my writing career really kind of took off, um, eventually we started talking again. He had done this pinup image of a character who would eventually be a Yane, like, um, and, and, and it was 
the cover to issue one. That is a pinup he did years earlier of her standing at the top of the stairs holding these like spiked bats and there's all these creepy cats looking at you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, who is that? You know, a a piece of art is good is when you want to know more. Like, who is that? And he said, oh, I don't know. It's literally this girl. I want to tell like some Japanese ghost stories. And I was like, dude, I cannot wait to see that. Years later, we're talking again. And, you know, we should collaborate. We should do stuff. And I said, what did you ever do with that Japanese ghost story? And he goes, oh, I haven't done anything. I was like, oh, (laughs) you should do something with that. That would be so cool. And he was like, yeah, but I don't know. And then we started talking about Japanese myth and yokai and how cool some of that stuff was. And all of a sudden it was like this bolt of, oh, oh, that, that myth in the modern world story. You put it there. Put it in this rich, interesting push myself out of my comfort zone in terms of same old, same old Germanic and English kind of mythology. And let's go into funky places with it. Right. And, and the more I researched, the more interesting it was, the more I talked to him and eventually Zach Davis, and it just kind of bubbled out. We, we realized we had this, we, we had all these cool elements of a team book where everyone had powers that you hadn't quite seen done that way before. So it, was, it felt sort of almost X-Men-y where they were these outsiders being pulled together, but there was mm-hmm. no Professor X. They were just like, so, you know, they were just misfits that were kind of running around. And then I realized, oh, we would have the old against the new. So then we've got the old yokai are going to try and destroy them. And well, now we've got a clear threat and now we've got this generational divide and it just starts feeding itself. And I'm like, can't wait. Like, okay, now, now we got some, we got some grist for the mill. Let's really get into it. You know, let's really dig. And the one thing I realized we needed was we needed a touchstone character because Rory had became that character because your general North American reader isn't going to know these myths, isn't going to know these legends, isn't going to know this history. And we jump, dump them in the deep end and show off how much we know Either characters are going to be doing the terrible exposition. Well, Bob, as you know, and they're all telling each other shit that they've all grown up and and knew. Or, um, you know, the reader's lost utterly because everyone's talking colloquially as they should and no one's talking about the stuff. And so Rory was this. No, she's getting pulled into it. So as she learns, the reader learns it's a trope for a reason, but it works really well. It sure does. And now we're off and running. Right. And then that became, okay, so why isn't she in Japan? Well, then she's got to be somewhere else. And you know, your first inclination is, Oh, she'll be from North America. And I'm like, yawn, that's boring. I don't (laughs) want, I don't want just same old, same old North American. And then the kind of inkling in the back of my mind was what if there was another myth involved? And then Ireland kind of came to mind and I was like, got it. Boom. Okay. Now we can start laying in the the pieces of that. And, and again, trying to do research, trying to make it feel as authentic and interesting as possible. And one of the things that sort of freed my mind up was when Steven and I were talking and when Zach and I were talking, I mentioned to them, my fears of, you know, you never want to, how do I put this properly? People say like, like you don't want to play into hard stereotypes of characters and you don't want to play up negative stereotypes of cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Let alone cultures that are not your own. Cause it's a minefield, right. you know, in so many ways. And, and the difference is, is that this is a story set in Japan involving Japanese mythology. This is not the 
intrinsic story of what it is to be Japanese, right. what it is to live and to grow up in Japan, what it is to be intimately tied in with that history and those myths, religions, all the things that we touch upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a difference. There's a, a slightly removed action adventure vibe to this thing, right? Yeah, for sure. And hopefully done with respect in, in from what the feedback we got, that's the way people have taken it, which is yep. our intent, right? You know, and, and trying to do it with as sensitive an air, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to make dramatic choices or or put characters through difficult scenarios. One <laughs> of the things you have to avoid, and I tried very hard to avoid this when I was writing Marvel's Champions, was you had a you had a diverse. Well, you have. I mean, the team still exists. You have a diverse group of these young heroes, and I felt like they had been coddled a bit like they had been treated like well we can't do nasty things to them because they represent this diverse new generation of heroes and i right. said no marvel heroes get dragged through the mud that's what makes them marvel heroes yep. if if you're a marvel hero you get your ass kicked and then you get up anyways if you're peter parker your life is hell and you go through these dramatic turns and every x-men and every new mutant every the teen titans all these characters oh. i grew up reading they got their ass kicked and that's why they were awesome is because they got up and they were as they were up against the same threats as the adult heroes and that's how we knew they were just as good or better yeah for sure and so one of my goals when i was writing the champions was <laughs> i'm gonna hurt them <laughs> and that sounds really awful right but it was <laughs> i don't care i don't care where you came from i don't get you're getting it you're getting it both barrels like i'm just gonna make your life crappy and then you're gonna fight back and you're gonna be the hero that that you deserve to be and some people really like that and some i think some of the readers were a little traumatized <laughs> and shocked <laughs> that i was so hard on those characters but it's because i thought they were worth it that was why we did it, right? And the same thing with the cast of Wayward. We were cruel to them. We were vicious. We were nasty. But then when they overcame, you get up and cheer. And that's why we we do that stuff. You know, yeah. that's an action adventure. You know, this if it's a romantic comedy, you, you put them through the bottom out and the breakups and all that so that they can get back together. And that doesn't mean every story has to end with a happy ending. I think Wayward has sort of a wistful ending. Mm-hmm. There's a undercurrent of, uh, a hopeful potential quality of the future, yeah, but there's a lot of tragedy and destruction and a lot of unknowns. But what you feel like is that you've finished a, a chapter in the story of these particular characters. And some people have been sacrificed and some things have changed, but they will carry on. And that's that's kind of the, the end result of the thing. So there's a tough question I like to ask. It's kind of one of my signature questions. Sure. Um, what would you say was your biggest failure along the way? And what did you learn from it? Um, so really early in my comic writing career, like I'd been in the business doing other things for quite some time, but in my, like I, I had skull kickers as a breakout. I was starting to do work for hire, work for other people. I did stuff at dynamite and things like that. And all of a sudden an opportunity to write a DC comics dropped into my lap. And it, wow. it it didn't drop into my lap. I like I earned it in the sense that I was at an industry party. I had met an editor there. She had asked me about <clears throat> what I was interested in, and she kind of followed up. The new Fifty Two at DC. This is not some big spoiler. Was a very contentious time internally. Mm. There was all sorts of creative uh, excitement, but there was all sorts of problems, and and the vision of the thing 
sales started to drive a lot of their decision-making. It's a commercial product. Sales always drive some of your decision-making, but it was like, oh, something didn't sell well this month. We got to change everything. So there's a lot of like mad dash kind of transformations of books and creative teams getting swept in and out just incredibly quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and if you were able to hold on and, and make something special, it made a lot of people's careers, but it destroyed just as many of them. And so I got asked to um, pitch on a book that was already running that they didn't like the current direction of essentially. Hmm. And I came in and said, you know, I, was, I read the current issues and I read a couple of the plans that they had. And I was like, oh, here's what's missing. And the editor was like, agreed hmm. come on in and fix the thing and so i was supposed to write a, a one of the dc you know new 52 books i was supposed to take it over after the first year um and that was going to be a huge level up for me and it even it got announced and so i mean i'm why am i couching it i was supposed to write birds of prey and this was going to be friggin' amazing. Um, yeah. The amount of visibility I got off of that was bonkers. People were friends of mine who I hadn't heard from in years were like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> you're going to be writing superhero books. And um, people in the industry were paying more attention. And all of a sudden, there, it sounds really corny, but there's no other way to put it. It's not fame in the way that you think of, like, walk down the street and everyone knows your name. But within that compacted industry, I had leveled up. Right. in a lot of people's eyes. And now I was worth watching and worth paying attention to and worth listening to. And I had never had that kind of a surge of, of interest in my work and my visibility and people asking me for interviews and all sorts of stuff. And um, I had never played in that sandbox that way. Plus, I was not ready for all the things that were going on. I was so used to a very simple kind of deliverable of, I will pitch you the best story I can. I will write to spec. I will deliver. I'm a good professional worker. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't know is there were a hundred moving gears underneath the machine. There were politics and there were creative decisions being made on the fly. And there were editors clashing with each other. And there were power games that were being paid on, played on all kinds of different levels of the company. And oh, this wow. is true at Marvel and other places as well. But I, I just had never seen it before. I was so used to, you gave me a job, I will do the job. If you like it, you will give me more work. Right. And so I went in very naive, to be 100% honest with you. I should have talked to more people who had been doing the work. I got a couple of warnings from people, but they were very vague. Mm -hmm. Like they were just sort of like, just, you know, watch yourself. Don't, you know, if someone tells you a thing, don't always believe them. And I was like, what? Like, why would someone hang me out to dry? Like, why would someone lie to me? Don't they want me to do the thing? They told me they want me to do the thing. And what I realized was, is I couldn't really trust a lot of what I was hearing or what I knew. And I was getting pulled into meetings without the information. And so I would just say what I thought and what I didn't know is I would make a faux pas or I would, you know, get screwed essentially uh, through means that were just beyond my understanding. Hmm. And so within a like three month span, I went from, I'm writing this book. They announced I'm writing this book. I'm starting to do press for this book and I've got two scripts in the can and now I'm fired off the book. No one will talk to me or explain to me what's going on. And everyone's giving me these, no, no, we like you. We just made a creative decision. We're just changing gears. And you're like, yo, if they like you, mm. they'll carry you on that creative change or they'll tell you what they want. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And so I got just 
internally, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And all I knew was in the, what we think of as the North American comic book industry. Yes. There's all sorts of different publishers and all sorts of things, but Marvel and DC obviously carry a lot of cachet and they're called the big two. And at one of the big two, I was essentially stonewalled and blacklisted. And I was like, oh, this is the start of my writing career. (laughs) Half of my, what most people think of as an aspirational end goal for where you want to end up, the doors closed to me and I don't know why. And I am depressed and frustrated and I think I'm heading out of comics. And so um, if I hadn't gotten Samurai Jack, I probably would have wrapped up my career in comics, honestly. Samurai Jack saved me in so many ways. It saved me in terms of getting me back on the board for a lot of people, because that book was very well regarded, sold, kind of punched above its weight class in terms of sales. Nice. Um, it was supposed to be a mini series, and we did a 20 issue ongoing because it did so much better than people were anticipating. Um, it was well regarded. Um, it proved that I could consistently put out something with a voice that wasn't just my own stuff. And on my confidence, my self-confidence level, it like rebuilt me like, Oh no, I'm, I'm still in the game. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not toast. Um, because I thought I was toast cause, cause that was it. Like I, I was kind of messed after that thing. And so what did I learn? It was weird. I learned a couple of different things. One thing I learned was, um, you know, get as much information as you can. I mean, it's research, same deal as all. Get as much research as you can, as much information as you can about the people you're working with and working for and what they're doing and what they're not doing. Mm -hmm. Talk to your peers. That's where that network is so valuable. You know, it sounds awful to say like a whisper network, but people can't always tell you what's going on above the board. You need to have people you can trust. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, Make sure that you are proactive. I kept waiting for editors to tell me what they needed because I was getting so many mixed signals and I needed to grab hold of it and be more confident and say, look, this doesn't make sense. But because I had never worked there before at that level, I thought being a good soldier was the right thing to do. Just wait for your orders, Mm. wait to be told to charge over the hill and then get shot or whatever. (laughs) Um, The other thing I learned was that, and I don't, I don't think this is intentional. The thing I'm about to say, it's going to sound a lot harsher than it is, but because everyone, not everyone, so many people are trying to build their creative careers. They are looking for where they're going to get the most value for their time and effort. Right. So when you go to a convention, there's this awkward bit of socializing and networking where people will look at you and they will decide if you're a high value target. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. am I worth spending time with? Am I going to further their career? And they don't even always do it on a conscious level. Sometimes it's subconscious, right? You're looking around and you go, oh, that's the editor I really want to meet. I sure I'm having a great conversation right now, but but Mm. I got to go. You know what I mean? I got to, I got to take my shots. And what it does is it, you realize that you're constantly being measured and, and we all are in, you know, in, in real life, you go out to a bar or you, hang out with a group of friends and you get a sense very quickly of what your value is. Right. Or, or your, you know, what's the joke that someone says, it goes, you know, if everywhere you see assholes, you know, maybe you're the asshole, you know what I mean? Like if, 
if no one wants you to your party, you're just like, oh, what am I? I'm garbage. I'm I suck. Or you know, you're like, have I done something mortally wrong? And when you get a certain amount of visibility, and all of a sudden, quote, everyone wants to talk to you and be your friend, and then it goes away just as quickly. You learn something. You learn something about what your own value is. You learn something about what your priorities are, how you should treat other people, mm. where your true friends are, all those things, right? right? And also you learn not to take some of that stuff personally. Like some of those people that were very, very invested seemingly in me and then suddenly weren't, I don't bear them much ill will. Like mm. a couple people, yeah, okay, yeah, they <laughs> kind of screwed me hard. But most of those people were just, their job was predicated on yep. finding people who could produce and I was no longer welcome. So of course they're not going to, they're not going to hang themselves out to dry for me. Why would they do that? They don't know me. I right. haven't produced for them. You know what I mean? Like if I, I, I don't know Tom Brevoort in the sense of like, you know, he's going to invite me to his kid's wedding or something. But like if, if Tom screwed me after all these years we've been working together i would be understandably like really really hurt because mm. that wouldn't why would you do that do you know what i mean but at the time it was like i'd been there three months i had had nothing come out all of a sudden it was like oh that's not working well okay that person's not uh welcome anymore so we gotta move on and we gotta put out these books you know month to month to month to month and that was just sort of the way it was mm -hmm. but um i did a couple other books at dc uh just really one shots and little things like that i threw tons of pitches at them like i've pitched them heinous amounts of projects and been rejected on them and for a while i was like am i am i stupid uh but i realized i was being blocked like that was not their decision you know what i mean and gotcha. no one would tell me that until years later when it was safe to do so uh and i have my first dc book come out a couple you know last month uh first project in eight years i did a batman one-shot story that i'm hoping turns into more nice. thanks to the power of max dunbar oh, who max. brought me back into the fold Good old Max, that boy's <laughs> the best. And so, yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my self-confidence, how much of that I was hanging on other people's approval, how much we all do, no matter what. You know, you if, if you're successful, you know, you want to be, to get that positive reinforcement kind of loop going. Yeah. But then picking myself back up and diving back into the fray and realizing, you know, you're not, you're not dead and also understanding so when years later uh when i started getting work at marvel it was so much more my headspace was actually a lot better because i wasn't i didn't have delusions of grandeur i don't think i did at dc but there was that little underlying voice of like oh here we go this is the <laughs> launching point it's going to be like little projects and then huge you know what right. i mean because that's how this stuff goes because it was happening to some of my friends uh -huh. and that marvel was now like oh okay yeah yeah this is cool i can do a good job on it even when i was doing you know avengers or or iron man or captain america uh, not captain america uh, uh conan the barbarian or stuff like that like mm -hmm. It suddenly was like, yes, cool. I can do this. I can deliver. I can sit at the table and be as good or better than anyone else that that is currently doing the thing. But I don't. My worth is not predicated on this. Right. I don't need this in order to be a worthy, creative person. You know, 
Whereas for a while, I think I think the DC stuff was sort of like, oh, this is this is legitimacy in a way that I hadn't received before. You know, yeah. That's a good lesson. Tough, yeah. tough lesson, but good lesson. Yeah. Well, now that I've made you relive that traumatic experience, that's all good. If uh, I wasn't comfortable talking about it, I wouldn't talk about it. <laughs> and there a was a point. long time I wasn't comfortable talking about it, yeah. like like stinging, you know, like like can't be in the same room with certain people, kind of stuff. And you're just like, oh, and and you know, some people will will turn those into public um, spats, and I've never been that kind of person. That's probably helped and, your career, though. Well, it your... does. There's a duality to it, right? You know, you play, you you roll the dice. Like, there were some people when when things were bad, they said, oh, you should you should bark publicly about it. Be- some people said to me, look, oh, DC's mistreated you. You should make a big spat about it because Marvel mm-hmm. will swoop in and save you because oh. it's a PR win for them. And they can subtly give the middle finger to the, you know, their competition. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want my first Marvel project to be because they want to give DC the middle finger. I want to actually do a Marvel project because I love working on Marvel stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you build your career on this weird spiteful quality, maybe it works out, but you're building a bit on sand. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, why don't they give me a job? Because my stories are good, not because they can get an attaboy from someone else. Yeah. You were looking for a relationship, not pity sex. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There you go. That's the analogy, right? Um, I don't need to be the sloppy seconds on this. Come, come at me. Cause I'm doing good stuff. There right? you go. On the flip side, what would you say has been the biggest compliment you've ever had for your work? Um, when people tell me that something I wrote, got them back into comics or gaming, Right. When someone says, you know, oh, I used to read comics in the 90s and then I started reading Skull Kickers. Now I'm a collector again. And I'm like, well, my book, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Or or I stopped reading, but then someone gave me whatever wayward or, you know, those are the kinds of compliments that blow your mind. And, and particularly the creator owned books, because. Look. Absolutely love writing Conan the Barbarian, but understandably, I'm in the shadow of Robert E. Howard you know, and Roy Thomas, <laughs> yeah, as I should be. Yeah, yeah. How could I not be? Um, so my best case scenario is they say that I've elevated the material as an extension of, of what has come before. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas Wayward would not have happened without Stephen and I making it. So if someone says that's their favorite book, that's whole cloth because of our creative efforts, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's something very special about that as a compliment. The Dungeons and Dragons Young Adventurers guides are very precious to me because I started playing when I was that exact same age that we're trying to tap into with those books. Mm-hmm. And they will probably outlast me. And that is a very precious and beautiful thing to me because gaming is so core to who I am and 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 one of the things I love and, and getting to spend time with people in a creative way. Mm-hmm. And so when kids are freaking out about those books or they're telling me about their characters, some adult comes and tells me about their campaign. My eyes are rolling in the back of my head. Like, please don't, <laughs> don't tell you me your character that? stories. <laughs> some eight year olds telling me all about whatever fairy dragons they're hunting. I'm locked in. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm totally Jack. Tell me it all kid. Cause I know what that feels like. It's different, you know? Um, I got a really great compliment that I, for some reason, sticks with me. And it is about the commercial stuff, but I have to laugh. I was in Calgary and a guy brings over every issue of Avengers No Surrender, which was this Avengers event that I co-wrote. 
And uh, he's this old crusty dude. He's like my grandfather age. And he comes over and he goes, I've been reading, I've been reading Avengers this shit since Lee and Kirby. And I was like, yeah, every issue. I got every issue. I'm like, okay. And he goes, this is good shit. And I was like, yes, yes. And I like ecstatically signed every one of his issues. I was like some crusty old bastard loves my stuff and compares me to the books of his youth. I have done it well. Yeah, you know? that's a so, yeah. Those are the ones that stand out. Nice. So that kind of wraps up the uh, the writing craft. I'm gonna sure. beg you to come back and cover games with me because you know a lot about games as well. Games um, are great. Love them. People out there who don't know, they should definitely look up your TED talk. It's uh, oh, thanks. Very yeah. cool. One of the most one of the most nerve wracking things I've ever done, by the way. <laughs> Can't like even doing imagine. a TED talk. Woo. I I feel so comfortable doing public speaking. I've been teaching for so long, and yet that thing almost melted my mind. Right on. All right. Um, so before we close this out and walk out the door here, um, yeah, there's some quick fire questions I want to ask you. Sure. Um, I do also want to remind anybody listening that if you want to go deeper on craft with Jim Zub, Jim's got a Patreon, Jim's got yeah. YouTube, Jim's got a blog, all of which are extremely informative. I have gone through all of it, and it's basically a master class just packed oh, into different thanks, places. Dude. There's a lot on there. It's it, there pretty is. intense. And yeah. the, pa- the Patreon is uh, extremely informative as to current practices, tearing apart mm-hmm. scripts, pitching. If you want to get into comics or at least learn more about comics, check out the Patreon. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. So now for the quick fire round, what's sure. keeping you up at night these days? <laughs> State of the world. Um, okay. it, you know, every generation, my wife and I talk about this all the time. Every generation must feel like they are on the precipice, right? Like, can you imagine going through the sixties, the seventies, you know, the, the civil rights movements and the Vietnam war and, mm. and the eighties, you know, the threat of nuclear Armageddon and the cold war and all cold this sort war. of stuff and, and, and the AIDS epidemic and all these other things, every generation has its moments where they feel like, Oh, we've, it's too far gone now. You know what I mean? But the inevitability of the climate crisis coming in such full bore a way that no one sane is saying, you know, that this isn't happening anymore. We all see it in the weather. We see it in the changing patterns. We see it in the seasons. You and I talking about, you know, snowfall patterns or whatever. And right now in Toronto, it's supposed to be really, really cold in November, but it's not really, not yet. It feels like early October, Hmm. you know, and that's like a month shift out. The first year I was living at this house, I think I shoveled the snow before the new year, probably 10 or 12 times. I won't have to shovel it once. Probably wow. before Christmas, maybe wow. once if I'm lucky, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's changing and it's, it's scary. And it, um, yeah, so that, that keeps me up in a broader sense, you know what I mean? And that yeah. idea of these bigger forces that are beyond our control. And I think every generation has them and I'm now of the age where I'm thinking about them. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a good answer. Uh, what's your favorite quote from a book or a game? Um, I'm not even a book. My favorite uh, poem is probably um, Invictus, William Ernest Henley. Have you have you read it? I haven't. It's amazing. The, There's a, it's quote. it's not even that long a poem. Um, uh, I can uh, the the best part though is the end of it. It's very very simple. Hmm. Um, it says um, it matters not how straight the gate or how charged the punishments the scroll. 
I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that's the the final sort of chunk of the poem. And it's like, you are in control of your own actions. You can't control the rest of the world. You can't control what other people do or how they react, Mm -hmm. but you can control yourself. You are the captain of your soul. You, you make those decisions and, and we can all look at our decisions with regret. We can look at what ifs and who we were supposed to be or what we thought we were supposed to receive. And we all have those types of fears. um, But then you you've got to grab the wheel and and kind of go you know mm-hmm. what i mean and so that one i used to actually have that poem on my wall and in college and residence because i would i was constantly making stupid decisions and i think for a long time i was blaming other people for for them and then i for some reason that thing just like lodged in my brain and i was like no i choose I'm the idiot. I get to make good, bad decision. You know what I mean? And I've made tons of bad ones and I make tons of good ones, but in the end, I know whose hand is on the rudder, you know? That's a good quote. Nice. Um, What are you reading right now? Oh, so much Robert E. Howard. (laughs) So I'm the, I'm the flagship writer on Conan the Barbarian again, uh, launching at Titan in uh, 2023. And we have really big plans for not only that book, but it's sort of the tip of the spear on a lot of Robert E. Howard kind of plans. I'm working directly for Heroic Signatures, which is the rights holders to Conan the Barbarian. So Titan is publishing the book, but it's a co-publishing venture where the rights holders to Conan are doing their own big plans and long-term plans. And in a way that they never have before, where previously they've licensed the property out to publishers and they will approve stuff. Now I'm speaking with them directly all the time. I have weekly calls with them. We are planning out, you know, Robert E. Howard and his works like Conan the Barbarian is the original sword and sorcery character and has an incredible legacy. And those worlds are full of imagination and they're amazing. And I'm very proud to be able to work on them. And so I'm just steeping myself in it right now. I'm, I'm rereading stories that I loved growing up, but now with a much more discerning eye and I'm reading a bunch of the stuff I've never read before, like the brand Mac Morn stories or, um, you know, uh, uh, um, the original red Sonya story, shadow of the vulture or like Cole, those stories that I had tripped along lightly, but now I'm like leaning into much more heavily and just like, what is it? What are the specific qualities of Robert E. Howard's prose that make it so visceral and interesting? And and what can I do to role play myself as, as a Robert E. Howard? You know, when I say pastiche, I mean this in the best way, not just like cribbing his best sentences, but trying to understand the the blood pumping through those veins right. and, and make something that's going to be cool. And it's going to be worthy. Nice. Yeah. Well, if you could suggest they bring back the black and white savage sword with the old a three format or whatever it was, I miss yeah. that so much. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, wink, was... wink, hint, hint. <laughs> okay. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could sit down at the gaming table with four other people alive or dead mm-hmm. and play a game of skull kickers, D and D who would the right. players be? So I wouldn't pick anyone who is actually a gamer because uh, one of the things I love is I love teaching people games because I don't want them to come with any preconceived notions. Nice. Because I love playing with 
experienced gamers, but there's something very pure about people sitting at the gaming table who don't know how it's supposed to go. And you get an honest response from them about encounters or engagement or giving them decision-making that they don't get in their day-to-day lives. And they just respond so viscerally to it. Yeah. And it, that's where good storytelling comes and emotion and comedy and everything in between. So I would, I would want witty people, comedic people, really uh, intelligent people. And I thought about this cause you had, you had fielded some of this past me and I was like, okay, we got to get a really funky <laughs> eclectic mix. And if you say live or dead, well then I want to go for people I could never get normally. Right. I've had the benefit of playing with a lot of amazing people, but I want Mel Blanc because the king of cartoon voices, even though he's playing a character, just having him there to be able to do 100 NPC voices if required would also be glorious. Mm. And he's funny and he's witty and he's amazing. John Candy, uh, warm and amazing actor, you know, heartfelt, hilarious, spontaneous, such a good improv guy. Mm. And as far as I know, never played D&D. So I was wondering that. someone like him to the table would be an absolute joy. Uh, Terry Pratchett, because, I mean, come on, the king of, you know, Discworld and everything in between. So witty, so amazing. And then uh, you got to have Betty White because uh, Betty is uh, dirty, foul-mouthed, comedic, hilarious, spontaneous. Uh, That would be a gaming table for the ages. Oh, that'd be amazing. Wow. Good choices. You you almost overthought that. (laughs) I did, probably. So so good. Um, What is the one interview question? Nobody's ever asked you. And I know you've done a lot of interviews. I've done a lot of interviews. So the, the interview question no one's ever asked me before is um, if, if you were one of the cast of the Muppets, which Muppet would you be? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm stealing it. So yeah. what's, what's the yeah. answer? So, and this is actually a harder question than you think, because it's one of those questions where you think you are something internally and then externally people will tell you you're something else. So if I asked you like, which Muppet do you think I am? What would you say? Right. Which Muppet do I think you are? I would, yeah. I, I would make yeah. you Kermit. You're Kermit. See, and yeah. that's what everyone it says that's what everyone fucking says but whenever i talk about people say oh you're kermit you bring people together and you you're the thing and yet in my head i'm not kermit that's the weirdest part of all right i feel like i'm like rolf like i'm in the back there playing the piano and hmm. i'm just like wildly trying to entertain you and i'm not often it's weird but everyone yeah everyone always says i'm kermit but i feel like rolf i don't know why but if you take kermit and you strip away the 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 front man, showmanship personality. Kermit's just a storyteller at heart. He's a frog that sits in the swamp, it's plays true. a guitar and tells it's stories. True. It's true. Maybe I'm just in denial of my own greenitude. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> well, I heard that it's not easy being green. <laughs> That's also true. It's true. <laughs> that question is really easy for me because everybody tells me and I'm very, very self-aware. I'm Jack. Yeah. <laughs> nice. There you go. There I, you go. I just know. So that is the end of... Uh, our little chat for now. We'll talk about games Sweet. another time. Um, be before we go, though, here's a few minutes to tell me what you're doing, what you're working on, where people should look for <laughs> we were you. We're talking about prolific at the start of the thing. This is about to sound like just a, a moronic barrage. So. I'll put it all in the show notes for people who. Right. <laughs> Currently, uh, Marvel is releasing the the current um, miniseries of the Thunderbolts, celebrating 25 years of the Thunderbolts. Um, 
Clint Barton Hawkeye is uh, the leader of a group that he doesn't know if he even wants to lead and he doesn't know if he's the right person for the job, but he's going to do it to the best of his damn ability. Um, at the time of this recording, issue four and five are not out yet, and they are big, crazy fun. I hope people love them as much as we have enjoyed putting them together. Nice. I'm also doing um, a five issue. It's five one shots that all connect together into one longer story at Marvel called Murder World. Arcade, the infamous uh, Spider-Man and X-Men villain, is um, it, when you read stories with Arcade, he never wins, right? He never actually murders the superheroes. So Ray Fox and I are putting the murder back in murder world. Uh, he's going to be killing <laughs> all kinds of people. He's going to be doing terrible, terrible things. And you're going to see how murder world functions when it's not running one of its typical kind of contests. It is a <laughs> amazing ride. It is also the longest pitch to project I've ever had in my entire life. Ray and I originally pitched this project back in 2004. Uh, so it's an, it, this pitch is old enough to vote. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're very proud of it and can't wait for people to read it. I'm doing Unbreakable Red Sonia at Dynamite right now, which is a miniseries that's going to take uh, Sonia in all sorts of unexpected and cool directions in the Hyborian age. Nice. Uh, and we got some big, crazy stuff coming in the upcoming issues of that. Um, I'm writing Rick and Morty versus Cthulhu, <laughs> which is the s spiritual sequel to the two Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons books that we've done. The difference with Rick and Morty versus Cthulhu is the entire miniseries is predicated on the idea that Rick Sanchez does not want to do a crossover because by the, if Cthulhu comes for your IP, it means that you're at the peak and you're going to go downhill because that's when Cthulhu attaches to you and sucks all the life from your intellectual property. That is and so, so meta. It's meta and it's stupid and it's amazing. And we slam face first into HP Lovecraft's racist, paranoid texts oh, in good. ways that I am so super excited about. Um, not the racist, paranoid texts, but the uh, the riffing on them. Just to clarify there, I do love the Lovecraft stuff as a broader kind of, uh, you know, horror milieu. But yeah, um, I'm doing, uh, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm the flagship writer of Conan the Barbarian next year. Um, we're going to have a free comic book day story in May, and then the series launches next summer, but I am in the thick of writing on that. And Stacy, uh, my wife and I are in the midst of developing more of the D&D Young Adventures guides. And so we've got book six just came out, Dragons and Treasures. And I can't tell you the titles yet, but we have seven and eight in development. And uh, with a bit of luck, more beyond that as well. So look forward to them. They're so good. They're such, I'm so proud of them. So other than that, um, nothing pretty bored. Nothing. You yeah. got all this free time. That's right. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, well, um, again, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I can't wait to follow up and do the game part next. Sweet, man. It's going to be good. It's getting late, Traveler, and it's time to turn in. Thank you for sitting down with Gemini while we talked writing and comics. Your spot by the fire will be waiting for you next week, here at the corner of Story and Game. <laughs>